Hello and welcome to AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. Last week, Ben interviewed me as I shared my story with you, and this week we're going to turn the tables and I will interview Ben. I think you'll enjoy this. Without further ado, my friend from Lincoln, Nebraska, Ben B. Hello, Ben. How you doing? You know, I'm pretty good, John. How have you been? I'm doing excellent and uh, looking forward to this. Um, it's kind of fun that we get to tell our stories, you know, and I, and I didn't realize all this time that you and I have been talking that I never actually heard your entire story. So I, I'm looking forward to learning more about you today. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do as good a job as you did with interviewing me, but I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. You always do a good job. Why don't we go ahead and start um, with some of the background information? Why don't you tell us about, you know, how you grew up, your early life, and your first introduction to alcohol? Yeah. All righty. Um, yeah, I was born in a really small town in north central Nebraska called Lynch, Nebraska. It was about, um, gosh, it's, well, now it's about 250 people, but it was about 300 or 350 people back then. So, and lived there until I was about four years old. Um, my dad was the only doctor in about a 45 mile radius up there yeah. and, yeah, and helped start the hospital up there and whatnot. So, um, we left there when I was about four and we moved to a town called Norfolk, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. It's spelled like Norfolk, Virginia, but it's pronounced Norfolk. And, uh, I pretty much grew up there until I graduated high school and then, um, uh, went to Lincoln here for college and have pretty much been here since then. But, um, growing up in smaller town, Nebraska, I guess, well, my dad was an alcoholic as well. Um, you know, fairly functional from the outside to most people, I would say. Um, and for as long as I knew, I never didn't think my dad had a drinking problem. Like it wasn't, it wasn't ever a doubt in my mind. Like, um, so yeah. So I think that's where some of my codependent tendencies come on too. And, um, yeah, my, uh, give a little bit more background. I think my dad had some mental illness things too. And like in many of our dysfunctional families, nobody really talked about that. I know, um, for a period of time, I can't remember what war it was. It might've been Vietnam or the Korean conflict or something. They went to Leonard Wood, Missouri, Fort Leonard Wood. Right. And he was, uh, in the army down there. And I know he had some kind of nervous breakdown or something like that. And I don't know if it was related to drinking at that time either, but, um, my mom won't really talk about it. And, um, yeah, you know, being into psychology and things like that, I was always curious about it because, you know, a lot of that mental health stuff is genetic on some level. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to know for family history, but my mom's always been really guarded about it. So um, my brother was born down there. Um, I'm one of five kids. I'm the youngest of five. And there are only three of us living now. So this is part of the backstory too. Um, living in that small town, Lynch, in the middle of nowhere. Um, about nine months before I was born, I had a brother pass away. He was uh, driving home from a small town about 15 miles away late at night. Uh, most of us think he was probably drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, he was 16. He was waiting for his girlfriend to get home from some trip she was on. I think she was a cheerleader for the basketball team or football team, and it was a long ways away, so she wasn't going to get home till late. So he had been partying in that nearby town and drove home and either 
you know, passed out, fell asleep, whatever. My mom likes to think he had a stroke mm-hmm. um, and drove off the road and hit like where the gravel road meets up with the highway, like a culvert like that and died on impact. Mm. That's yeah, devastating was, for your family. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, yeah, I think it was tough. And then um, I was born about, gosh, six, seven, eight, nine months later. And then after that, the next fall, which would have been 11 months after my brother had passed away, my sister, who was 15, um, died as well. Wow. Yeah, my dad had a little office in town and like had one of those old farm tanks. Sorry, this is for people that have suffered trauma. This I don't always like the whole trigger warning thing, but you might want to be prepared. Um, he had like a gas tank behind his office that he would just keep full of gas to fill up his own car. And those old farm gas tanks have like a glass filament that hangs from the hose. And uh, they had left her friend's car running because it didn't start very well. Well, I guess that glass filter hit like the metal part of the thing on the pump and it uh, spilled over her and the exhaust of the car ignited the gas. And uh, my sister was burnt really badly. Like, I don't think this might be an Mm -hmm. over-exaggeration. 85 to 90% of her body, I think, was really burnt. And... They took her down to San Antonio, the burn unit and all that stuff. And I think she lived like six to seven days and then passed away. So within an 11-month span, well, 18-month span, I'll even stretch it to that, my mom lost two kids, gave birth to another kid, and then her mom passed away right after that too. So this little town of 300 people, that's quite a lot of tragedy for one family to go go through losing two kids. So you were too young to be aware of that is that right where you were how old were you when they passed away i mean you were just you were born after your your brother died yeah were you yep. were you born when your sister died yeah i would have been um it happened in september i think so that would have been, i would have been about six months old yeah okay. when she died do you so have I, any idea how that how that impacted your parents and, and your father's drinking oh man you know i think i do it's it's um you kind of alluded to this. It was weird because I feel like I grew up in a different family than the rest of my siblings. Yeah. I have I have a sister who's 20 years older than I am, and then I have a brother who is 10 years older than I am. So he was 10 when all this happened, and my sister was 20, so, you know, kind of a young adult. And yeah. so we kind of grew up in way different families just because of the, the age difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think – this is more my perception, but I again, I wasn't there. I think my dad always – his drinking was always pretty bad, but obviously this thing's kind of progressive and gets worse. Yeah. But, um, you know, he had always kind of – they bought a ranch while we lived up there too, and he always had a trailer house out at the ranch. So he was always going there on his evenings off so that he wouldn't be bothered. Like mm-hmm. that was his evenings off. You know, knowing what I know now, he was going out there and getting shit-faced, I mm-hmm. think. So my parents always kind of had separate, I wouldn't say separate homes at that time, but, you know, he would go out there and spend plenty of time. And so he'd isolate out there and drink quite a bit, I think. And then, you know, my mom was just raising the kids and doing whatever. So how it affected him, I think, you know, it probably, I don't know that he ever really dealt with it, to be honest. Yeah. And I do, I'm sure his drinking did accelerate. Um, Yeah. And he was kind of like a local celebrity around there. I mean, that's grandiose, but it's, you know, he was the only doctor for a long ways and that people really worshiped him and thought he was the greatest thing ever. People tend to do that to doctors anyway, but 
Um, I think he really liked being, you know, kind of the head honcho in a small, big, uh, little fish in a big, or big fish in a small pond. Yeah, I know. Small town doctors are pretty important in, in rural areas. Um, did he, was he one of those old fashioned doctors that would make house calls and stuff like that? Oh yeah, he definitely did that. My dad was a pilot. So sometimes there's stories of him flying 20 miles and dropping medications out of the airplane to people. Wow their farm or yeah i mean who knows if that's completely true or not but my dad was kind of a character he was a real um as i know doctors now he was not a typical doctor he was just very down to earth i guess but kind of insane too really (laughs) i mean just kind of kind of a dirty old man kind of Mm -hmm. raunchy kind of just and i think people appreciated that about him there too you know he'd be the guy that go have a beer with you at the bar and Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff but um yeah. So I think partly my family moved to Norfolk to kind of get away from all the tragedy up there. Sure. And also, I think my dad just never had any time off when he was doctor in that small town. Yeah. And I, th- I think how it affected my mom, those tragedies, I think she probably, well, she would, she told me this. The first death, my brother, like she said, she was just so depressed after that, which makes sense. And then the second death, I think she realized that she had to wake up and live that, you know, I think she, she would tell me that she thought the worst thing that could happen to her had already happened. And Mm -hmm. her words would be the Lord told her, no, that's not the worst it could get Mm -hmm. and that you need to wake up and live your life still. So I think she had a lot of guilt and maybe still does about not being there or being present for my sister Mm -hmm. that passed away in those months. Um, cause I think my sister was really close to my brother who passed away too. So I think everybody was just really depressed and nobody was really there emotionally for each other because sure. the family was so dysfunctional to begin with. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like everybody was their own little Island. And I think the way it played out to my brother, um, that's still alive. I think he just didn't have anybody to guide him through that. He's 10 years old and probably didn't know what the heck was going on. So it's kind of interesting how the family dynamics play out along with birth order and yeah, all those. Yeah. And I'm kind of detached from it. It's like, it's sad when I think about it, but I don't get sad about it because I didn't know them, but I know right. it's like the whole family of, uh, experienced this whole thing that I didn't necessarily experience. Right. That is interesting. And your, and your, your older siblings, they might actually have that memory of before and after and have noticed some change or, or mm-hmm. something that's that is interesting yeah yeah my sister i think she says i, she, I don't know if she thinks my dad changed much through that either but um i don't know I, of yeah. course everything just got worse and worse and my dad was never a very emotionally healthy person to begin with so yeah yeah and my parents not being close i mean they i don't know they, they've they always had a really dysfunctional relationship mm-hmm. the whole time after we lived in norfolk i think my dad lived with us for I don't know, maybe four or five years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they had a little home on a lake too. And so basically he just moved out there. My parents were separated pretty much my whole time growing up. It was mm-hmm. kind of, it was very strange. I'd have friends who would ask me like, isn't that weird that your parents don't live together? But like my dad would come up for supper once or twice a week. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it didn't seem weird to me just because it's what I grew up with, but I knew it was not normal. I didn't right. have any, I didn't have any, you know, doubt in my mind that my parents didn't have a good relationship. 
So did did you notice his drinking? Like, were there hospitalizations and and things like that that you had to you had to witness when you were growing up? You know, not growing up. You know, I think my dad mostly drank beer, and that was his excuse for not having a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, because real alcoholics drink uh, hard alcohol, right? You know, that whole lie. <laughs> yeah. But I know, growing up, my dad would um, you know, he would wake up in the middle of the night and come downstairs and grab a beer or two and go back up to bed. Yeah. And then inevitably, um, we, we had a time where we had a, a water pipe break at our, the house my mom and I were living at. So we moved in with my dad at the other house for a while. And, and that's probably when I was around to see more of it. You know, like I said, he'd sleep for three or four hours at a time and wake up and drink and then go back to sleep. And basically his body was waking him up to get yeah. more alcohol. Yeah. So, and he'd come downstairs and he would, I remember one time he pissed in the stove Another time he went in the bathroom and I could just tell he was not peeing in the toilet at all. He was just all peeing all over the floor. And I would have to clean that up. And, um, you know, it's, I always, I never looked at my dad's drinking as normal. Never. Yeah. yeah. And he, he was an ultra nervous, anxious person. I don't know if he was that way when he, before he drank this much too. I think he probably was, but mm-hmm. obviously drinking exacerbates that too. I'm sure he was going through acute withdrawal different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the mornings and whatnot. And, but I mean, I don't think he had DTs at that time, but when I, the interesting thing with, um, I'm talking about everybody but myself here, but when I started having signs of having a problem was when my dad's health really took a downturn. Okay. And, uh, he was kind of forced to look at his drinking. Um, and my dad went to treatment at that time for two months. And, uh, yeah. So that was an interesting experience because here I was when, when, when that happened, um, Let's see. I would have been about 25, 26. Okay. At that time. And did did you did were you um drinking at all before um your 20s? Oh yeah. Okay. Um yeah, I'll go into that a little bit. Okay. I think I I grew up and I was uh I don't know, I always felt alone. You know, we hear this a lot. I felt kind of like solo. I think I had a lot of friends, but I never really felt connected to a lot of people. Um, fairly codependent. I think I didn't have a lot of leadership for my family and I think I didn't have a lot of closeness to them. So I sought that out in other people and sought validation in other people. And, uh, so that eventually led to me drinking, starting drinking at 16. I can remember now this will be different than your story. Cause mm-hmm. I remember thinking it when you shared the other week when we talked, but, um, I can remember the first time I got drunk, I got super sick but I don't ever once remember saying to myself, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. It was like, I've got to figure out how to do this and do this, wow. you know, be able to do it. Um, and I felt like it, like I was invited to the party then, like I was accepted. I was part of the cool group. I mm-hmm. was, that was the first payback I got from partying and drinking. Mm-hmm. And throughout high school, I don't, I didn't drink a ton in high school and, and maybe my memory is not great, but I think mm-hmm. maybe like once a month, mm-hmm. uh, my mom was fairly strict. She didn't, uh, you know, I was always on home on at home on time and things yeah. like that. I couldn't stay out super late, but, um, I had a serious girlfriend all throughout high school and that was mm-hmm. part of my codependence too. That relationship was a nightmare, <laughs> but, um, Definitely my drinking accelerated after I uh, graduated high school. Like that summer, I would say I was drinking four or five nights a week. Yeah. Um, Coming home super late every night, you know, just, you know, Mm -hmm. doing what I thought everybody did at that age. But Mm -hmm. my drinking even then wasn't very healthy. I mean, bad things didn't always happen. But um, if something happened that I felt bad about, you could sure be 
you'd, you'd be sure that I was drinking. Yeah. And just a lot of it would be treating people poorly, saying things to people that wasn't kind at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what alcohol does. It removes that filter. And I think for me, at least my, my inner turmoil was turned outwards towards other people when I right. drank because I didn't have that filter. And, and so everything that I hadn't processed or worked on inside just shot out at everybody outside of me. And I don't, I don't know that I was always the mess. Like my friends wouldn't have been like, Oh my God, watch out for him. But right. there were times where it was like that. But a lot of times it was me trying to take care of other people too. Or I mm-hmm. was always the one who drove everybody home. I'd pick everybody up. I'd drive everybody home. Um, some of that I think was a control issue too. I think if I picked you up and we went out, I, well, I had control as to how late we were staying out that night, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's also that grandiosity of thinking, well, it was a combo of grandiosity thinking I'm a safe drunk driver. And it was also a combination of, I think I felt so little and, and so small and didn't think much of myself that I thought if I got in trouble, that was better than somebody else getting in trouble, you know, mm. for like a DUI or something. Right. Yeah, very codependent crap. Yeah. I guess that just comes from ha- um, growing up in an alcoholic family, doesn't it? That codependency. I, you know, um, I've gone to therapy. I've talked about this and I've worked on it on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think, I think I couldn't ever get any validation from either of my parents, not mm-hmm. just my dad. But, um, so I sought it out in other people and, um, I didn't have anybody to like nurture me through figuring out how to be an adult. Mm -hmm. I didn't get much, uh, there wasn't much frank discussion about any of that stuff. And frankly, I don't, I don't, I don't know that my parents knew how to do that. They were too, too wrapped up in their own stuff. And and I won't even say selfish and self-centered, although that's, that's kind of what it is. I just, I see it more as like people that hadn't processed their own crap. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, at least, especially in my dad's case, I don't think he felt comfortable directing anyone else because i don't think he felt very good about himself either yeah so did you go straight to college after um high school i didn't i worked at high v uh in norfolk and i didn't go to college right away and i remember my mom was freaking out thinking i would never go to college but i didn't know what the heck i wanted to do with my life uh-huh. and uh want to waste any money going and then i had a friend and i i partied a lot at that time and I had a friend who came back that semester. I think he'd failed out of going to school down here in Lincoln. And he said, hey, I'm going to sign up for classes at the community college on Monday. You want to come with me? And I said, yep. And <laughs> I signed up for classes at the community college in Norfolk. And that was super easy. And I partied my way through that as well. Yeah. And then uh, I came down to Lincoln that next semester after that. And Lincoln's an excellent school. I mean, University of Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's exactly Kansas University, but it's uh, <laughs> it's decent. It is decent. Yeah. And, um, you know, I did really well right when I came down here because I think I wanted to do well and I knew it was going to be a step up from community college for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, I did really well my first semester and was on the dean's list. And, and then after that, I think I was just like, oh, well, this isn't going to be too tough. And I partied more and my drinking caught up to me. And I'd either like a class and I would go all the time and I would do well. Or I would barely go because it was going to be too much work in my mind, and mm-hmm. I would, I'd either withdraw or I'd just not show up and get a bad grade. Like right. it was, it was a feast or famine. I either mm-hmm. aced a class or I, you know, I got a D and needed to retake it, or I withdrew. Or is that yeah. interesting? And I can see now. I I couldn't have told you then, but my life revolved around drinking, and it yeah. doesn't mean I was drinking all the time. Right. 
But if something had to fall by the wayside, it was never my party life. That was always a priority. You know, like it'd be, if I had a class and the only time it was offered at 8.30 in the morning, I'd be like, well, obviously I can't take that class. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to be able to get up that. Yeah, I know. But, uh, that's and that's how I did my life too. Um, up until I the my last drink. I mean, everything centered around alcohol and that next drink and somehow keeping it going. Mm-hmm. And I always, when it gets to like a first step conversation at a meeting, I tend to talk about that more in detail uh-huh. about the earlier stages of drinking problems because it's so it's a lot easier for people to see that we have a problem when your entire life falls apart. But like I said, I can look back and those are the little things that showed I had a problem because it was, it was my priority, whether I was drinking all the time, even if I was just drinking on the weekends at that time, by the time I felt better on Tuesday or Wednesday from a long, hard hangover, I was starting to think about what I was going to do the next weekend or when was going to be the next legitimate time to go out because yeah. if I got, I'm not going to drink by myself because that's what alcoholics do. Yeah. You know, I had all these rules set up and for the most part I followed them. And, um, you know, I had a lot of friends because of that. And that's not to say I was some, I mean, I do think people liked me in general, but I kind of had to have a lot of friends because I had to have a lot of excuses to go out because I had these things in my mind that said, don't drink alone or else you got a problem. And that and just having that 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 concept is enough to to that that I know now is that yeah, you had a problem, you know. Anytime we start thinking that we have a problem, I think we have a problem. Right. Um but alcoholism is so insidious because like it it just gradually gets you, but mm-hmm. then once it grabs you, it just tears you down really, really fast and just takes right. you to places you never thought you would go. Yep. But um, it is in the very early stages when you look back at it, you know, you can see how you were already um, having a problem. It's just that it's a progressive thing and it's just it really gets you. Really oh, does. for sure. I'm, you've probably heard the analogy, but people will talk about it being like a boa constrictor or something or a python like you exhale just a little bit and it squeezes just a little bit tighter mm-hmm. and so slowly that you don't recognize it. And then all of a sudden your rib cage is compressed and you can't exhale and you're, wow. you're done. I've never heard I, that, but that's very, very true. That's the subtle sneakiness. Cause it's in its psychological in the early going too, before it's physical. Like I can remember when I was 22, 23 thinking like I ain't got something to take a look at or I'd have times where I'd tell myself I need to not drink. I yeah. knew I was somebody who couldn't drink very well. Yeah. And I knew that that it needed to be abstinence, but it was always in my mind like, well, what in the hell am I going to do for fun? Yeah, who in the who in the hell is going to want to date somebody who's um, sober? Um, how the heck am I going to have any friends? You know, now these are like delusional thoughts that I look back on because even though a lot of people drink in their early twenties. Not everybody was drinking like I was, and there was lots of people who didn't drink and and were focused on lots of things. But the delusional thinking in my brain was that – and that's what alcohol did for me. It made me feel like somebody. It it made me feel desirable. It made me feel like people wanted to be friends with me. Yeah. Um, And to me, that's that's the – I mean, I hate this phrase when I hear it because it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. That's why this thing is so sneaky because it's so ingrained. Everything about me was based around the fact I drank or yeah. not. Yeah. So were you able to get through school okay? I was. Um, it took me a little longer than it should have. I think mm-hmm. it took me five and a half years with you know withdrawing or doing this or doing that. I mm-hmm. look back at that, I have no idea how I did because 
um, yeah, it was just school is not my focus. I did what I had to do to get done, but Mm -hmm. I think my grade point average was a 3.2. So it wasn't awful, but I even looked, yeah, it was pretty good. But like all through my history, I was always in gifted classes and accelerated math and this, and when things got difficult, I would, um, I think I would back away. Like I didn't like the challenge. Maybe I was lazy. Maybe I was insecure, but so, I mean, I could have done much better. And when I think about the effort I put into school, like there was little to no effort put into school at all. Uh So it's, it was kind of disappointing, I guess, when I look back at it, but you know, here we are. So when did you start having life problems associated with your drinking? Oh, I mean, I would say those school things are life problems right there. Right. And, uh, I think I grew up in a family of means and I think my dad was still sick. So I think I was financially enabled for quite a long time too. Mm-hmm. So that allowed me to delay a lot of things, like a lot of things that went on with the state planning. I had access to income mm-hmm. that um, allowed me to continue to deny that I had an issue, I think. And basically I was stuck in neutral. I wasn't moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I see that as a sign of a life problem too. It wasn't like I had a job and got fired. It was at times I didn't need to have an outside job. I mean, I did at times, but, um, yeah. And, and that's part of that whole dysfunctional family web. I think my dad kept a thumb on most of us with money on some level so that we wouldn't say anything about his drinking or couldn't say anything about his drinking. Cause I can remember saying to my dad, like, you know, maybe you would feel better if you didn't drink all the time. And he'd say, oh, yeah, well, who's paying for your college? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was like denial of a problem. And so that enabled me to not have to make any decisions. Now, this is this is getting dangerously close to not taking any ownership. I was just stuck in neutral. I had no sure. forward momentum in my life. I had none. And uh, I think all my friends would be like, well, what the heck is Ben ever going to do, mm-hmm. you know? So when you got out of college, what was your life like? What were what was going on? There was tons of inner turmoil. I uh, I tried writing for a while. I um, you know these grandiose delusions of I'm going to write this book and it's going to be a hit and I'm not going to have to go get a real job. Um, again, still partying probably three nights a week at least, pretty hard. Um, you know, to be honest, I even asked myself, what the heck did I do with my time at that time? Mm-hmm. I got into film a lot. I went to lots of films. I did some pro bono work. Um, I don't – I partied a lot. I hear you. I had kind of a lost period of time after – when I left KU um, and there was a, a period of time when I was living at home and that was kind of a loss. I don't know what the hell I was doing. It was the time of drinking and, and just kind of wandering Mm-hmm. Um, then from going from job to job, um, actually, I, I, I always tell people that, if, and this is really kind of true, the 1980s, for the most part, was kind of a lost decade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't really, um, I didn't, I, I can't, it's hard, you know, my, my wife will sometimes talk about some television program or something that, or some movie that came out in the 1980s. And it's like, you know, I don't know. I didn't watch television. I didn't go to movies yeah. in the 1980s. Yeah. 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 I do. I just don't know. All I remember about those periods were I had enough money to go out and party plenty. I lived an okay life. I had jobs off and on. I was an electrician's apprentice for a while. Got that job through a friend's dad. Um, but you know, off and on I wouldn't have jobs and I could make that work with, with my income at the time from 
uh, from my dad's, from what my dad had done with his life, to be honest. So when did you, what caused you to finally hit bottom and realize that you had a problem and needed help? Well, like I said, it was, there were all these things along the way that, that were little signs and I just, it was constantly deferring like, oh, well, things aren't bad enough yet. Yeah. Or I'm too young to quit drinking or, you know, I'll give this spiel in meetings sometimes. It would be like, um, something bad would happen. I'd hate myself for it. Um, usually it was saying something awful to somebody and then it'd be like, well, shit, the holidays are coming up. I'm not going to stay sober over the holidays. That's when everybody gets together to party, you know, and then it'd be like, well, I'll quit after the new year. And mm -hmm. then it'd be like, well, shit, if I wasn't in a relationship, Valentine's day is coming up. I don't want to, you know, be sober and single on Valentine's day. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and then the next thing was every year I went up to some St. Patrick's Day celebration. So it's mm -hmm. like, well, shit, I'd hate to miss that St. Patrick's Day celebration. There's just all these excuses over and over and over as to why to keep putting it off. Right. And then, you know, then it was summertime. I golfed a lot. So, you know, there's a great rationalization there. I drank and golfed all the time. Mm -hmm. But I'm golfing. I'm not drinking. Right. right. So. Um, but really it was, you know, and how many times did I make a complete ass of myself on the golf course mm -hmm. and then roll that into college football season around here. College football oh, is a yeah. huge deal. Huge. And there's, again, there are legitimate excuses to party every single Saturday, Friday, whatever. Um, cause around here it's a whole weekend deal for right. college. football. And you still like football, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, oh yeah. I don't know if you can grow up around here or not. <laughs> It's a, it's a religion basically around oh, here, yeah, yeah. but it would, uh, it was just constantly delaying that all the time. And then, um, let's see, I was, let's see, it would have been 2000. So I was 25 and, uh, I went down to the country stampede. Oh wait, first I got a public urination ticket. I was peeing in a oh, parking no. garage, <laughs> yeah. peeing in a parking garage in front of my car. And I remember I uh, just got a ticket for that. So that was nothing. But those were the first legal things. I know yeah. some people don't see that as a big thing. But shit, I don't know. I suppose people could – I could have got charged with indecent exposure or sure. something. Yeah, but, God. Yeah, boy. Yeah. And then um, let's see. 2003, I believe it was, I went to the country stampede in Manhattan, Kansas. And again, this is one of those times I look back and um, – I went down there with some people that I normally would not have hung out with. And I look back at it and the only thing I had in common with them was that we all like to get shit faced. Mm -hmm. And the country stampede is like an all day country music fest. I don't even like country music. <laughs> I was wondering so, what it was. I was wondering, is it a rodeo or something? <laughs> no, it's uh, it's like you have bands all day long and right. it's 90 degrees in the summer. So it is a great excuse to get completely shit faced right. all day long. Right. You know, and people hook up with people and everybody's acting poorly. I mean, You'd walk yeah. through the campgrounds there, and there's people just having sex oh, behind wow. the campers and in the grass, and people are running around naked. I mean, it was just, like, debaucherous. Right. <laughs> and um, so I went down there, but the problem was I had a – the next day we were going golfing all day with some friends for a bachelor party. and um, But I didn't want to miss this chance to go down the country stampede that I don't even like the country music sure. for <laughs> <laughs> and um so i Sounds drove like the country music was kind of secondary for everybody oh, anyway. yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um yeah it for sure was but i mean there's a ton of people that go to this thing oh, and yeah. everybody always knew you do not drink and drive at this event you right. just don't do it right. and so i went down there on my own separate from the people i went with because of course i had to get back for this bachelor party the next day and um so i drank all day all day like drunk 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 all day all day and then at the end of the night, I climbed in my car and I was going to sleep for, you know, till the morning and then turn around and drive home. 
And a cop came up and knocked on my window and said, you can't park here overnight. So of course I pulled my car to where I could park it overnight. And then in my great grandiose strong thinking, I think, well, I don't feel that tired. I'm going to drive home. Two and a half hours from Manhattan, Kansas to Lincoln, um, shit bag, completely shit. And I got pulled over in Waterville, Kansas. I rolled through a stop sign and I spent the night in Marysville, Kansas, the black squirrel city, I believe it is. Um, yeah. And I spent the night in jail there, uh, blew a two, three, three, trying to drive two and a half hours home. Wow. Yeah. And I look back at that and it's like, that's ridiculous. And I hadn't drank for probably three or four hours when I got pulled over. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Very insane. Um, so and, did they charge you with DUI? Yep. I got DUI. And at that point they didn't have aggravated or anything like that. And I look back and I got the lightest slap on a ri- on the wrist. I think it cost me, I mean, it cost me quite a bit of money. I think it was two grand in the long run, but I paid off my community service hours. I paid a fine. I got diversion for it. Right. I mean, you don't get diversion for DUIs today. Yeah. Uh, so it was off my record and that was it. And I remember the short period of time after that, I said to myself, I need to not drink. Right. And I remember I had some uh, sleazy bail bondsman came and bailed me out of jail. Um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Like, I'm asking all the guys in the jail, like, what the hell do I do? How do I get out of it? I didn't want to call my family because, God forbid, they know I have a problem. And here I am, you know, two hours away from Lincoln still. And uh, so this bail bondsman came and got me. And I think I would imagine he was a very evangelical Christian gentleman. Uh-huh. He was like, my son, do you think you have a drinking problem? And I was like, you know, I think I do. And I think that was the first time I told somebody else that I did. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I remember talking to my friends and saying, you know, I'm not going to drink. And they were all like, yeah, cool, man, whatever you got to do. And that lasted for about a month. And then that became, I'm not going to drink and drive. And then that became, I'm not going to drink and drive legally drunk. And then sooner or later, I was just driving drunk all the time. And like you said in your story, John, like I drove drunk all the time. And if I went out there, I was, I was going to drive home. It was, and I completely hammered all the time. No, but you could be sure as heck I was definitely over the legal limit. Well, that's what's so frightening about, um, you know, drunk, the drunk driving problem. And, and, and people don't, I don't think they really understand this sometimes. Like you'll hear in the news sometimes about somebody who's had like 15 or 20 DUIs. And even if they take their license away, they still drive drunk. And, And people say, what the hell? But you know what? You lose your mind. When, yeah. when I was drunk, I was I was blacked out. I couldn't make a sane decision. Mm-hmm. It just—I mean, I'm not trying to give up like responsibility, like you say, but you really do. You lose your inhibitions. You 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 can't think soundly. You can't say, "Oh yeah, I, I can't drive." You know? Yeah, it's not. And like I mean, that. I was a fair. I mean, this sounds stupid, but I was a fairly moral person. And like, if somebody was around me and I wasn't completely hammered, and they tried to drive home, I would not let that person drive home. So right. it was kind of a. It was kind of an arrogance and it was kind of a, like, uh, I think I can drive better than other people drunk, but you're mm-hmm. right. It's like past a certain point, just all logic goes out the window. It I does. mean, it makes sense as we talk about the brain science between drinking, but, yeah. and there's where, you know, I would wake up and I would just feel so torn up because it's like, it's you, but it's not you yeah. and you can't, and you can't deny that it's not you anymore, but it's like, why do I do this? I know not to do it. And it's like, it's that Jekyll and Hyde feeling of being like, Absolutely. I am making these decisions that I would never make in my right mind. But yet it is also a sign of what's going on internally that needs to get taken a look at. And That's so I got, yeah, 
And uh, so, I mean, that's why I have some empathy for people, you know, like my wife, even, you know, she gets it, but she doesn't get it. It's like, how can somebody have that many DUIs? And like, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, because it is about taking personal responsibility. After I ingested alcohol past a certain point, it was like, there's uh, somewhere the switch got flipped and it was party on and it was, yeah. uh, there was no stopping these bad decisions. It felt like. Well, that's what uh, finally, you know, got me is I realized that. There was no way there's, I mean, I was just going to jail. I, 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 there was no way I could control it. There was no way I could not drink and drive. It seemed there, I was mm-hmm. just, I, I just couldn't control it. I just, mm-hmm. and that was the, that was what was so bad. So, and, yeah. and it still scares me. I've had, I've had nightmares where I'm driving drunk, mm-hmm. you know, many, many years, just many, many, many years after being sober for many, many, many years. Yeah. There's that one of the stories in the back of the book. I don't remember what it is, but one of the people says, um, "I either was I was controlling my drinking or I was enjoying my drinking, and I never did both. Mm. Like if I was trying to take it easy that night, I was deathly aware that I was taking it easy that night. Like you know, I would say like, okay, Ben, don't drink too much tonight. Have just four, five, six. And I was always hyper aware that I was trying to take it easy that night. But if I wasn't doing that, you know, who knows how many in the hell I was going to have. And I did not enjoy controlling my drinking. That was, that's not, that's not the way I want to drink. It's balls to the wall or it is. And and I even proved that at different times where I would stay sober for a while. And then I would go out and it would be like if, if it was a calm night, I just wouldn't drink. Like if yeah. everybody was going to go out and everybody just have a few beers, I wouldn't have any. Yeah. I'd be like, no. And so most people would say, well, look, you can control your drinking. But actually it was a sign that I knew I couldn't control I my drinking. And that's something I, that's what I realized too. I did that too sometimes. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I did the whole thing where, you know, I'd take a month break and a two month break. And then I got super active and was running 10 miles a day and got in really good shape. And then, you know, I'd be like, Oh gosh, you know, my thought pattern would be if only I could do this and drink, I'd be fine. You know, it's just this change of, I just need to exercise more. And then I'd add drinking back in and eventually everything would go to shit again. And I'd end up hating myself. So it sounds like you had a series of series of bottoms. What, what, when did you finally get to AA? What's that? How'd that happen? Uh, so in 2007, I got another DUI, which would have been my first offense aggravated up here okay. in Lincoln. And uh, again, this is a scary thing looking back. But that night, I would have told you that I took it easy because I was driving. Um, I told everybody, you know, you guys get hammered. I'll take it easy. And if you would have talked to me throughout the night, if you would have talked mm-hmm. to my friends, they would have been like, Ben's not drunk tonight. Mm-hmm. And I got pulled over and I blew a .18. Yeah. And I hadn't drank for two hours. Um, wow. So... That tells you something about the, how people drank that I hung out with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but when I got pulled over, I knew it. My friend was like, oh, you're fine. You're not even drunk tonight. I'm like, no, I'm going to jail. Wow. He's like, and I was speeding coming out of downtown. I think I was going 67 in a 60. And mm-hmm. I had just said to him, I go, oh, shoot, I'm speeding. I better slow down. And right then I went by a cop. So, wow. But, uh, yeah, I spent the night in detox that night. A friend of mine came and got me, and uh, he's like, what the hell's the deal? You're not even drunk. What are you doing here? And I'm like, you know, well, you know told him the whole story. But So there, there is a sign of uh, progression and tolerance, right, yeah. that I'm yeah. aggravated and blowing a .18, and that was an easy night out. Wow. And, you know, I had 
that was the thing that finally got me to go to AA because I had an eval and of course had lied through my evals before. And, um, that had coincided with my dad going to treatment too. So that was a real time where I, I was torn because I knew I was denying my own problem. Mm-hmm. And I think the degree of my dad's problem allowed me to deny my problem too, because I'm like, well, I'm not as bad as my dad. Mm-hmm. So knowing now what I know, well, no shit, Ben, he had 40 years experience drinking on you. Of course, mm-hmm. his problem's going to be worse than you. But, um, yeah. And that's when I got introduced to AA and I had a lot of emotional problems before that. I would always get involved in bad, bad, bad relationships where either I was the drunk and they were the one trying to take care of me or, uh, interestingly, I would, that my codependence would kick in and I would date somebody who was a worse drunk than I was. And I think on some level that was my way of trying to control my drinking too. It's like, well, she needs my help. She's really a mess. So I have to take it easy. So let's talk about let's talk about your experience in Alcoholics Anonymous and I and and also um, how you dealt with the how you've evolved over time in AA and how you've dealt with the dogmatism because you your experience is a little different than mine in that you were at one time a, a religious Christian person yeah and yep. I don't know if you were when you're in AA so can you kind of go through all of that your belief system AA how you've evolved. Yeah, I'll try and be quick. I grew up going to church. My mom was is and still a big religious person. We went to Methodist church, so that's pretty liberal. But um, you know, I never really believed for myself. I guess if you asked me at that time, I'd say I did. But then I see it as a function of my alcoholism in my mid twenties, where I was just I just always been on this search, you know, for finding myself or whatever, finding purpose. Um, and I just, I delved into the Bible like crazy. Um, I actually had moved home for like six months at that time. That was after I went to grad school for a period Mm -hmm. to try and, you know, delay becoming an adult, Mm -hmm. I believe. And then after I quit that, I just couldn't do it. I was just like, this is not what I want to do. And then I moved home with my mom in my mid twenties. That sounds so pathetic now, (laughs) but, um, I think I was between a lease and I didn't want to sign a new one because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So all I did was I went to the library and I read the Bible every single day. Wow. And I think when you're that depressed and you're struggling with addiction, well, I'll speak for myself. That was what it was for me. So yeah. any, and, and there's a lot of truth in the Bible. A lot of, I mean, I don't like the word spiritual, but there's a lot of things that can be very convicting yeah. and, um, and inspiring in the Bible. And I latched onto that. And I was kind of abort- interesting that you and I both have that in common. Cause I did the same damn thing. I read the Bible during that depressed period. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would say that there were a lot of mentally ill, depressed people that were writing that Bible. So it would make sense. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, so my mom was of course, super excited about that. Sure. And that probably bought me some time in her good graces, but I never really had like a time where I finally said, this is all bullshit. I don't believe it. It was kind of a slow coming out of it. And to be honest, I had a period of time where I was planning on becoming a pastor. Mm -hmm. I had uh, filled out an application to Duke Divinity School. Well, my friends thought I was crazy. It's like, oh my God, you go from being this big party guy and now you're going to be a pastor. And and I was still drinking off and on too. So again, absurd, but I would be drunk at the after hours party debating theology with people and just hammered off my ass. Yeah. And, uh, I have a tendency towards being arrogant and judgmental to begin with. But when you put a little bit of fundamental Christian behind that Uh and some alcohol, holy shit. I mean, I was, I was an asshole to a lot of people (laughs) big time. 
And, um, yeah, so then it was just kind of a slow falling away from that. Really. I, I really got into film like at depth, like, mm-hmm. um, screenwriting, um, storytelling, um, the deeper meaning behind things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuff was really inspiring for me. And then when I got that last DUI and I went to AA, I don't know that. I, I mean, I, if you would ask me if I believed in God, then I suppose I would have told you I maybe did. I don't, uh-huh. maybe I wouldn't have. Uh-huh. But the stuff about God and AA never really annoyed me until I really um, – I can't remember how you phrased it, but I realized I was an atheist. Right. It, I came to realize I was an atheist. You accepted Not it. Like, yeah, it wasn't like, fuck religion, this is all bullshit, although I do think that. But it, it wasn't like a decision I made. I just realized this is my viewpoint. Yeah. I think getting into AA at first, it made me feel important. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if these are good things or bad things, but I'll just say what I'm realizing looking back. You can come in there and you compare things and people can really, really think you're, know what you're talking about. Right. And I think that was good for me on some level because it gave me confidence. But Mm -hmm. I also, this is going to sound arrogant probably, but I mean like it can be not very difficult to impress people in AA. Right. You know what I mean? Um and I think the arrogant side of me liked being, okay, very much like my dad probably liked being a big fish in mm-hmm. a small pond in that small town. I think I got that from AA. Mm-hmm. And that sounds very arrogant to say even as I say it, but that's where I was. Um, and, you know, I fell in for sure. And I definitely saw the value of, of staying sober. Mm-hmm. I found the value of having community with other people. Um, I didn't really rock the boat much. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, like so many people, after about two years sober, I got inspired to become a drug and alcohol counselor. Mm-hmm. And so I went to school for that. And, um, you know, my whole meeting at that time was so laid back, like really anything went in that meeting, both oh, good okay. and bad. I would bring outside material to read from mm-hmm. my counseling stuff for a topic. Mm-hmm. And I was so naive to the fact that people were annoyed that I was bringing that in. Mm-hmm. Like I was just like, well, shit, this makes sense. Right. <laughs> but now I look back and like people were looking at me like this ain't AA. Get it the fuck out of here, dude. Oh, uh, wow. Um, but yeah, so I just slowly kind of, I don't know, fell away from belief. And I'm pretty impassioned atheist now. Yeah. Um, I don't try and push it on anybody like I say, but um, I just started questioning I never was a dogmatic AA person. I saw it as more of like an intersection of psychology and sociology and um, biopsychosocial is what Mm -hmm. you learn as a counselor. It's it's all those um, confluences that make us an alcoholic or a problem drinker. Right. And, um, you know, I don't know. I probably went to four meetings a week almost always. Mm -hmm. And when I was a counselor, I kind of only went to that one meeting because on some level I didn't want to be like all over the recovery community because that can be really awkward for your clients that go to AA. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. After I stopped becoming a counselor or being a counselor, I went to more AA meetings around town and I saw more of the dogma and fundamental back to basics type thing. And right. I don't know. I didn't always like what I saw. So did you start speaking out? Yeah, I definitely did. Um, Oftentimes, very diplomatically, mm-hmm. like to where um, I like what Josie says. He says, I was hiding out in plain sight. <laughs> like, you know, you learn how to talk right. the right way that you're saying what you're saying, but nobody explicitly knows that you don't believe or this or that. Yeah, that, yeah, I did that. Yeah. That got more, that got more extreme 
over time. And I suppose there was an unhealthy period where I just wanted to say, fuck this. This is stupid. Can't believe anybody believes this here. I don't, I didn't say that overtly, but I mean, that was the undercurrent of what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, again, I think for me, the healthy part of that was I needed to authenticate my recovery. It was, what do I really believe about this? What do I think is the truth? Am I just buying in? Um, because I definitely think I drank the Kool-Aid in AA for a while, which yeah. was good on some level. But I look at how I carried the message and how I sponsored people, and I look back at that, and I'm like, that wasn't very good. You know, I was kind of, I was. It's kind of funny. I had a conversation with Dale um, last night, and we were talking about um, reading the Big Book and stuff in our early days. And and he said something. He said, you know, you got to know the rules before you can break them. Right. So maybe there's some, there is some value in, you know, and do, and having that period of time where, where you're like drinking the Kool Aid or whatever when you're really kind yeah. of under, uh, learning about it because that, then you know how to do it on your own or the, your own way, I guess. Yeah. Well, I found even just saying something that I found to be true and framing it even in the most polite way was starting to draw tons of feedback, like mm-hmm. passive aggressive feedback from people in meetings. Like, if we read from We Agnostics, I would say, well, no, personally, I don't really care for this chapter. I've read it many times. And it's just been important for me to realize that it's just, for me, non-belief is, is where I'm at. That's what yeah. I found out about myself. And I wouldn't say anything that anybody else should think like I would. But, man, it would just, it would really bring out the responses in people that would, I can believe know, it. I can believe it. I can imagine. See, I would never say anything like that at my old home group. And when I finally did, I started getting the pushback. So I could imagine you were. People yeah. don't like, people don't like um, hearing something bad about the big book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, it's interesting that I didn't even see it as bad. I just saw right. it as, okay, I've read this part and this part doesn't ring true for me. Right. And their reaction is to think that I'm putting it down or, and to me, what I know now about psychology and family dynamics, it's a very dysfunctional family reaction. It's like, don't say anything bad about anything because I can't handle it. You know, it's yeah. like, it's all or nothing. It's like either AA is the absolute greatest thing as written right. or else you are on a slippery slope to being on the way out. And I am so thankful for our community that we have because people told me, no, you don't have, it's not, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. Uh-huh. You can say and what I think about AA now might not be what I think of AA in five years from now. I, um, you right, know, it's exactly. it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I can exactly. say I don't believe in the disease concept, but I, I can understand why that rings true for so many people. You know, I can say that. Right. Whereas I might believe something different at another time. Absolutely. Um, we do evolve as people. I, I heard something kind of interesting, Ben. I wonder if maybe I heard it from you. I don't know. But it's like me. I think I was reading something somewhere where – our personalities change like every seven years. We're like a different person. No, that I didn't. That makes sense, but that wasn't me. But yeah, it kind of makes you know when I think about it. When I look at different phases of my life, I mean, I had a different belief system at one time, and and things that I absolutely believed then, I don't believe now. So I kind mm-hmm. of evolved and changed, like yeah. Bill W did, for example. <laughs> absolutely. How dare he? <laughs> Um, and that's why I feel sorry for Bill W because the, the the dogmatists like like to put him back where he was. Like they like to lock him as one as one particular person that he was in one particular time. But he was like the rest of us. Every seven years or so, he, yeah. he evolved and he changed and he, and he his life went into different areas. But anyway, 
Well, and I think if you are growing and changing and evolving in, in my snotty opinion, working true recovery, you're going to evolve and change. Like the people that don't evolve or change or have a mindset change, those people scare the hell out of me. And from a clinical standpoint, I would estimate that those people's lives aren't really working that great for them. Yeah. Now, again, it's, it's, it's complicated because as somebody who's a counselor and has been a counselor, it's kind of my job to judge people's recovery mm -hmm. to help them mm -hmm. get the most out of it. But mm -hmm. as somebody in AA, you know, that's, that's not right. healthy or it's not, it's not what we're supposed to do, right? Yeah. Focus on your own recovery. But yeah. I think, uh, yes, it makes sense. I'm a new dad. So mm -hmm. the things I'm thinking about in my life are framed differently now. Absolutely. And, and recovery makes sense to me in different ways than it did before. And there are absolutely things in AA and recovery that help me be a better parent. Sure. And I like, I like meetings and I like an AA that talks about what's going on in our lives. Not that we come in and we just ramble about, oh, I had a tough day and this was this and that. But I mean, like, I like to reference what's going on in my life to relate it back to recovery principles because – that way it always stays fresh. And maybe that's not helping the newcomer. I think it is. Yeah. But some people would say it's not because we're not just preaching the same tired old whatever. But my genuine feeling deep down, and it's different for everyone, is that what has a chance to resonate with people in yeah. AA that are coming, that are new, is not the words we say. It's how we carry them. It's the tone we use. Yeah. It's the energy that we I put agree. off. And I'm not saying that I don't hear things that I need to hear, but if somebody said the exact same thing in just a slightly different way or a slightly different tone, it's not received the same way as it might be right. said slightly differently. <clears throat> right. So, and I think it's it's our grandiosity as alcoholics, and I've been this way too, so I'm not calling just everybody else out. I'm calling what I hope is old me out too. Sure. It's our personality to think that here's the way it is. Listen to me. And I don't know, I kind of lost my train of thought what I was going to say there. Well, but tell me this, Ben, when did you discover agnostic AA and, um, the convention in Santa Monica and all of this online, a, um, agnostic community that we've got, you know, it's all these things you ask me now. And it's like, I can't even remember some of them. I mm -hmm. think what probably happened, I think I subscribed to the fix on an email mm -hmm. thing. And I would imagine that they had an article in there about it. And then mm -hmm. I think I did Google search and I saw it. Mm -hmm. And I said to my nephew who very much thinks like me, he's like eight or nine years younger than mm -hmm. I am. So we're kind of more like brothers or friends than nephew and uncle. But, um, I said, Hey, what do you think about going to Santa Monica to this thing? I go, there might be 15 people there, but I think it'd be fun to go. And to be honest, it was a great excuse to go to California. Yeah. yeah and what a beautiful place Santa Monica is. Oh, oh, yeah. I want to go back sometime. I thought the setting was great, too, and the church that we were in. The, yeah, uh, beautiful. I, I just liked it all, the nice courtyard area there, and, and the fact we went off into those little rooms off in those different little buildings outside yeah. the yard. And, though, yeah. I, I love the whole thing. But yeah. anyway, um, I think I probably just Google searched it, and then we decided to go. And I really was thinking, okay, it's probably going to be us and maybe 50 people in Southern California. But uh -huh. to see... I don't know what was 300 yeah. people there. And yeah, I don't know if 300 was the total number of people, but I felt like I saw a lot more people there than that yeah. because, yeah. excuse me, there were people there one day, there were people there three days, there were people there that just came in the afternoon. and uh -huh. But it was it felt like more than that there at, in, the whole time. But it's all kind of a blur to me how yeah. I yeah. 
into that really. And then I met RJ out there first because uh-huh. she was so outgoing and came up to me yeah. and gave me a huge hug and had her awesome Gaytheist t-shirt on. Right. And, uh, and then, uh, I know I met you and some other people and, um, yeah. And then I think I got on the Facebook group from there and then it's just kind of yeah picked up. Yeah. I'm so thankful for it because it's, there's still moments where I will say to myself, like, why am I even bothering with this? You know, uh-huh. when I'm frustrated in a meeting or this or that, and you guys out there help keep me grounded and know that like, no, this is a good place to be. This is, this can be a very healthy part of recovery ongoing sure. for your whole life if you want it to be. And, and it can be, you're pretty involved. I mean, you're pretty involved with the online community. I mean, you do these podcasts and you're very involved with all the Facebook groups um, so do, do you feel like in a way that that is like part of your program that, um, that that's helping you? It is. Um, but to be honest, I don't even like to refer to it as my program. Right. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's just, kind of... it's, and I'm not saying that to correct you, but it's no. like when I, when I'm commenting on, and maybe this is a human service student and counselor in me, but when I'm commenting on things in the group or even talking about stuff like this, to me, it's, it's a human thing. And I sure. know it is for you too, Sure, but it's like, I don't want to preach at somebody and tell them what they need to do. Yeah. I just want to be there for other people and help them walk their own path through this yeah. thing. That's what I hope I do. Yeah. Cause I kind of feel I that way. Not doing that, so. I spend so much time like, you know, like this conversation I've had with you, I don't really feel like I need to go to a meeting today. I feel like I've had a meeting, yeah. um, working with um, Doris on the site and, and, and Lynn and, and Thomas and everybody else. You know, I just feel like I've got so much interaction with other AAs that mm-hmm. this is pretty satisfying for my recovery. Although I, I don't want to completely get away from my face-to-face meetings. I, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, I started the face-to-face meetings, um, started going to those and, and starting an agnostic meeting. I really believe in that and still do. But now I've gotten so busy with the online stuff that it's t- kind of taking me away from my face-to-face meetings. Mm-hmm. It's like everything. I, it's always that fight for balance. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I went to a meeting the other night. A friend of mine was getting an eight-year chip. And I was glad to go down and, and be there for that. And yep. I hadn't been at that meeting for a while. And gosh, like five different people are like, oh, it's nice to have you back, like in kind of a snotty tone. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, I uh, I don't know. I wrestle with all that back and forth. And being a little bit on the codependent side too, like I'll feel guilty for not going to AA more or not yeah. being more involved in this way or that. But it's like, those are the things I work on in therapy that I've got to work on letting go. Um, you know, I'm because, actually thinking about going to a regular meeting this mm-hmm. weekend, a traditional meeting, because I haven't been to one in a long time, just to see how I can deal with it. I don't know why I want to do that to myself. Well, I sometimes the the stinker in me just wants to go down there and see, well, let's see what all the dogmatists are saying. Yeah. But, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised plenty of times, That's too. That's true. And, I mean, it's a lot and of there's, people. There's a lot of people I know that are believers. They're, you know, more like the light believer. Like they just, they aren't willing to say that they don't believe there's a God because they think it means you think there's no point to existence, but they're real laid back. And I know the meetings they go to, and I know I, I would enjoy those and I have at times. So, yeah, um, I, I need to go to more evening meetings because for a while there, the way everything was working out, I was going to a lot of noon meetings during the week. And that tends to get, you know, like the 60 to 80 crowd. Um, so you're going to get a more conservative, um, mindset in those kind of meetings. And yeah. I think I would be well served to go to more evening meetings. 
Did you say last weekend that you're going to move? Yes, yeah. My wife and I are going to move to Omaha. Okay. She teaches up there, so she's got about a 40-minute drive each way. Okay. Um, so since we've had our daughter, it's a little bit more important to be closer to her work. Okay, well, that'll and, be interesting for you. Omaha, I like Omaha. It's a nice city, and they actually have, I think, a pretty nice community up there of, of people. Um, yeah. I, I guess I don't know it as well like RJ does and everything, but I've always liked Omaha. I've always heard good things about it. Yeah. There's a there's a part of me that's excited to go up there and get like an AA reboot, you know, like yeah. go up there and be in new meetings and meet new people and yeah, um, yeah, just be whoever I want to be because you know I've got a history with people down here and yeah, I think in general I'm pretty well respected and liked around the rooms. I mean, uh-huh. there's some people who don't like me to say anything about not believing in God or or being contrarian, but because I can play devil's advocate a lot, but I mean in general. I think people know that I'm educated about addiction and I think they think my heart's in the right place. Sometimes I, I don't share things the way I probably ideally should, but I don't know. I feel like my motive is I want more people to be helped and be able to be helped by AA. And maybe, maybe that's a bad motive, but I, I, I think there's a reason AA is shrinking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this, this unwillingness to evolve and grow and, um, I don't know. And we're yeah. seeing around here, we're seeing those more fundamental meetings kind of slowly die off too. So yeah, I find that interesting that, that uh, that's happening. I don't think it's happening here so much. Um, but like I say, I've kind of, uh, Oh, kind of gotten out of the Kansas city, um, AA scene. Um, and I, I go more into the, like the, uh, well with my district and, and the service level, I'm still active, but with the actual meetings and stuff, I'm not really mm-hmm. into it. But they they got some crazy groups here still. Yeah. Um, well, and I've heard there's some pretty fundamental ones up around Omaha too in the Bellevue area and whatnot. So we'll see how that goes out there. But yeah, yeah, I don't. I'm looking forward to it though. I know there's at least two um, free thinking agnostic like meetings going on up there still. So we should do like an undercover investigation <laughs> in one of the crazy meetings or something. That'd be kind of fun. yeah. Yeah, it would. I'd, people would probably say that's not very principled, but <laughs> there's once in a while, you know, where I'm thinking about writing an article for you and, um, uh-huh. you know, I want to go in and just take notes yeah. because it reminds yeah. me of what I don't, and I don't want to be like I'm in there trying to be critical and no. tear the meeting apart, but sometimes it is nice when I go on Saturday mornings to this one meeting, it is just nice to sit in the back row and observe what goes on. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. Again, to me, it's like, it's clarifying things. It's clarifying what I believe in what I think works and doesn't work for myself. And, you know, it's the same thing I've been going through with questioning my upbringing and my parents and things like that lately. It's like I'm clarifying those things so that I can be a better parent for our daughter, I think. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. We've come up a little over an hour now. So um, it's really been good to hear your story and get to know you better. It's been I've really enjoyed doing these podcasts with you. Thanks, John. I've really, really enjoyed it, too. yeah, it's been really fun. I feel like I kind of rambled around there, but uh, you did basically fine. I was a stuck and neutral person <laughs> who was enabled by parents who had some funds and uh, finally found a little bit of purpose in my life. And thanks to being sober and being an AA, it's definitely gotten a lot better. You can sure see a lot of commonality in our stories and, and all alcoholics. There's always a lot of, there's always some kind of pain in our past. Maybe it's true for all human beings, but um, I kind of I kind of uh, buy into that idea that, you know, there's something about alcohol that changes the way we feel and we needed to have the way we feel changed, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. we just kept chasing that, you know, yeah. and uh, until it, 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 it took us under, you know, but. Well, and I didn't say this earlier, but I feel like now this people get nervous when I say this, but I feel like alcohol allowed me to be myself for the first time in my life. Yeah, that was the payoff that I got from it. And that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean I should have used alcohol to do that. But that was the payoff. I needed to finally get to a point, And this is where I'm at now, thanks to recovery. It's okay just to be me. And that's what alcohol did for me. It allowed me to be myself. Now, of course, that wasn't good long term. Yeah. And I, I always say that it's it's important for me to try and be what I thought alcohol allowed me to be and just own it and be myself and be okay with that. That was the payoff. That was the payoff. All right, my friend. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon enough with another episode for your listening pleasure. Until then, don't drink, go to meetings, and help others.